Well, good Tuesday evening, Brother White. Hello, Grace Baptist Church. Once again, I bring you greetings from the USA. Uh, wishing that I was there. Miss the fellowship, miss the good time, miss your pastor. Uh, and I miss seeing what God is doing at Grace Baptist Church. I'm thankful for your love for the Lord and for your faithfulness to him. Great days to serve God. If you have your Bible tonight, I trust you do. Let me invite you to turn to the book of Numbers chapter 16. The book of Numbers and chapter number 16. I'd like to begin reading from Numbers chapter 16 and verse number 1. The Bible says, Numbers chapter 16 tonight at verse number 1, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. That would make, if you're counting at home, that would make Korah the great-grandson of Levi. We remember that the Levites were the, can I say, assistants to the priests. They were responsible for the daily care of the tabernacle and the ministry of God. So the Bible tells us here is Korah, we're introduced to him, and, and then after him there is Dathan and Abiram, who are the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Heleph, they're all sons of Reuben, and the Bible tells us they took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. You read those verses and you can't help but think this is not going to end well. My Father, we ask for your help now as we open the Bible that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would deal with us. Lord, I pray that there would be great victories that would be won tonight by your people at Grace Baptist Church. Father, I ask that the Word of God would do what it only can do. And now, for someone who is not saved, how I pray that tonight would be the night they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. We commit the preaching to you in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Mr. Korah has led the board in a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. The Bible tells us the leading that leading this rebellion are, are leaders from the tribe of Reuben. There is Dathan and Abiram and An, and of course Korah from the tribe of Levi. They are joined, the word of God says, by 250 princes of the assembly. In other words, the Bible says that they are renowned men. They are famous men. Everybody knows who they are. So we are talking about men in leadership. We are talking about men in powerful positions. They come to Moses. They come to Aaron. And basically the complaints run like this. You have too much authority. You are not the only holy people that are around this place. You are not the only ones who are right with God. They said, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. This is fascinating to me. Because when trouble comes to a, an assembly of people, be it the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, or be it the New Testament assembly, the New Testament church, it is interesting how people begin to think. And why this argument certainly has been pervasive down through the years, it is not stuck in the book of Numbers. There have been many a people who have risen up against their pastor, many of a group in a church that think the pastor has too much authority. I, he's not the only holy one around this place. He's not the only one right with God. But you know, there's a bigger thing here. And the bigger thing is that these people have made themselves spokesmen for God. 
Uh, they have their human logic. They come and say, Moses, all the congregation are holy. And look at this, every one of them. You know, that's fraudulent, and that's just a, a blatant lie. Not every one of the people in the tribe of Israel were holy. There were plenty of wicked people. There were plenty of hypocritical people. Not everyone was holy. They're wrong. They're just saying there's no difference between God's man and everybody else. I, 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 the Lord is among every single one of us. They sound so spiritual, don't they? They have become spokesmen for God. They say they know the mind of God, yet what they say violates and contradicts the very word of God. They are not the spokesmen of God. They are lying in the name of God. And for whatever sin was in their life before this verse, they have just added blasphemy to it. No, they don't have the license to speak for God. They don't have the right to be God's only voice. And what they literally are accusing Moses of, it is exactly what they are doing. You know, Moses, you have too much authority. But you know, I can't find any place in the Bible where Moses said, my words are now the words of God. All Moses did was take the words he heard from God and declare them to the people. I can't find any place in the Bible where Moses says something so blatant and so wicked and he would say something so foolish that all the people are holy and right with God. I do find a place where he looked up to heaven and said, Lord, nobody left here. But, uh, but you know, no, I can't find Moses living in sin like these arrogant rebels were. They've made themselves the spokesman for God. They are living in blasphemy. Well, in verse number four, Moses, ever the humble man, Moses, ever the compassionate man, when he heard it, he fell on his face. There's a big difference here, isn't there? For the men of Korah, he, is, he and the crowd following him, they're following their wicked hearts. For this man, Moses, he is on his face seeking God, on his face like David would go, on his face like Josiah would go, on his face seeking God. And the Bible tells us that he spake unto Korah and all the company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. All right, Moses said, Fine. We've heard your complaint. God has heard your complaint and God's going to deal with it. So tomorrow we're going to find out if you're right or the Bible is right. Tomorrow we're going to find out if your wisdom stands or if the wisdom of God stands. Tomorrow we're going to find out if all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God or if all men are holy. We're going to find out if you're right or the Bible is right and we're going to find out sooner rather than later. It would seem the issue is revolving around who gets to offer incense. And I guess that because in verse number six, he said, this dude, take your censers, Korah, and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. So evidently the argument, and, and it's a fascinating argument, because it wouldn't be one of the big things to me, but then again, the things that divide churches, very rarely are they ever the big thing. You know, if somebody stood up and said, Pastor, you don't believe that Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God, that'd be a pretty big deal. But it never works like that. It is always something that's minor, something that's small. And not that this is a minor issue, but it seems so to me. And the Bible tells us it seems the battle was over the incense. So Moses said, tomorrow, okay, you people from Korah and all the company, all you sons of Reuben now, you put fire in your censers before the Lord, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. Remember what they said, Moses, ye take too much upon you. Now Moses turns it right back on him and says, ye take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. This thing of offering incense... It turns out to be a problem again, doesn't it? 
It was centuries later that a king named Uzziah, a good king, a king that loved the Lord, he would offer altar, uh, he would come to the altar and offer incense that he was not allowed to offer. It was serious business with God. It, it would appear that the sons of Aaron on the other side of this battle, it would appear that they also had to deal with the issue of incense. While it may not seem so important to me, it certainly was incredibly important to God. So in verse number 16, we are reminded again, this thing would be resolved sooner rather than later. And Moses said unto Korah, but be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron tomorrow. They will come with their censers. There will be this rebellion, the leadership. There will be 250 men joining them. On the other side will stand Aaron, the priest of God. And the Bible says in verse 19 that the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. Enough is enough. It is time for God to intervene. And in verse number 21, God had a message then that he has not changed in this day. Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Verse 23, the Lord spake unto Moses saying, speak unto the congregation saying, get you up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Verse 26, depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. God means business. God says, tomorrow we're going to find out right away whose side I'm on. But before he ever delivers the judgment, his preacher delivers the warning. It is a warning that, a warning that says, come out from among them and be a separate. It is a warning that God's righteous preachers have preached from the beginning of time. You don't try to get along with the wicked. You don't try to find agreement with the wicked. You don't become relevant to the wicked. You don't try to connect to the wicked. Come out from among them and be ye separate. God said, I am ready to bring my wrath and my judgment upon the cabal of Korah. God says, if you want your life spared, come out from among them, depart, touch nothing of theirs. It's fascinating to note that as things come apart here and as push comes to shove, remember in the first text tonight, there were three men who joined Korah in the rebellion. There was Korah, the Levite, and the sons of Reuben were Dathan, Abiram, and An plus 250 others. But you know what's fascinating? That as all this begins to take place now, and, and we're going to find out whose side God is on, of course, Korah is there. Of course, Dathan and Abiram are there. But remember earlier, God said there was another man named An, and he is no longer a part of the rebellion. The Bible does not specifically say what happened to An, so a guess is as good as any other guess or an unnecessary thing, perhaps. But for whatever it takes, you know, take it or leave it. You ladies are definitely going to want to take it, though. The Jewish historians of the Old Testament claimed in their writings that the reason An was no longer a part of the rebellion was because his wife talked him out of it. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's not true. Something happened whereby An originally stood with the wrong crowd. Maybe it was the preaching that said, get out of there, get out of there, get out right now. Maybe his wife heard the preaching and a godly woman grabbed her husband and said, this isn't so for us. However it played out, whatever the story behind the story is, An is no longer a part of this rebellion. But might I say that if it is true his wife talked him out of the rebellion, happy is the man who has a wife who knows how to keep her husband from doing something incredibly stupid. 
Because, you know, there are dumb things we humans have done. But there are not a whole lot of times where what is about to happen happens. There are not many times where God's going to open up the ground into a pit and swallow up rebellion. Happy is a man who has a wife like An's wife, if that story is so, who knows how to keep her husband from the judgment of God. Well, in verse number 28, one more time, Moses is going to lay out the charge. You know, it's a very powerful thing, is it not? That, that when judgment was ready to fall, it could have happened the first day. But it's reminiscent, is it not, of Sodom, where the Bible tells us Abraham got between Sodom and the wrath of God and said, how about 50 righteous and 40 righteous and 30 and 20 and 10? And, and of course, the angels were sent before the wrath of God fell. At any time, God could have pulled the cork and the fire and brimstone could have fallen from heaven from the Lord all upon Sodom. It would have been just and it would have been right. But Sodom was not destroyed until a prophet interceded. Sodom, Sodom was not destroyed until angels from heaven, until the messengers of God proclaimed the warning, just like Moses is doing here. There are more than enough warnings for a sinner to be rescued from hell. If somebody should ever die and spend eternity in hell, it is because they ignored, it is because they bypassed, it is because they neglected or rejected multiple warnings of heaven. The Bible says in 28, Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth, and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. One more time, Moses stands before the people and said, we're going to find out right now. If these men are right and I am wrong, they're going to live to be old men. If I am right and the Bible is so and they are wrong, then God is going to do something that's never happened. He is going to open up the ground. A great pit will swallow them up in judgment. And that is exactly what happens. In verse 33, it came to pass as he made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. They and all that appertained unto them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. It didn't take long. The last invitation was given. The last warning was delivered. And all of a sudden when Moses is finished, the ground opens its mouth. Korah and his family and his goods are swallowed into the pit. Abiram and Dathan and their families are swallowed into the pit. The next thing on God's text is that a, a fire falls from God and it falls upon the 250 men of renown who offered strange incense. In other words, in a moment of time, the family of Korah is wiped off the face of the earth. The family of Dathan is wiped off the face of the earth. The family of Abiram is wiped right off the face of the earth. Or, that's what I used to think. But you know, if you read it very, very carefully, the Bible tells us that's not exactly what comes down. In Numbers 26 and verse number 9, the Bible tells us the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, and Dathan, and Abiram. This is that Dathan and Abiram, which were famous in the congregation, who strove against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah, when they strove against the Lord, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. When the company died, what time the fire of Korah, a uh, fire of our 250 men, they became a sign. But look, if you would please, at Numbers 26, verse 11, where the Bible says, notwithstanding... 
the children of Korah died not. When the pit opens wide, the rebellion swallows up that wicked man, Korah, who leads the charges. The family of Dathan and Abiram and all their household are gone. And perhaps some of the family of Korah is gone. However, the word of God tells us that in the midst of the judgment and the wrath of God, one of the mightiest stories in the history of the Bible, where the wrath of God is poured down on humans, and this rebellion is dealt with right here and now, that God found the way to save a little guy named Ebiasaph. Nope. While families died in that horrible fire, it was the children of Korah who perish not. I don't know how this worked out. You know, maybe there was a crack in the ground and it came right to the toes of that little guy, Ebiasaph. Maybe Ebiasaph is looking off the edge of the cliff realizing I'm about to die. I don't know if we could understand or appreciate what the screams of horror must have been like. What a moment in time that must have been. What an eye-opening event. But no, right in the midst of the wrath of God, with the judgment of God and the anger of God, right in the midst of that moment in time where a family that was so wicked, God had to wipe their father off the face of the earth, and we all thought he wiped his whole family out. The Bible tells us that God saved a little guy named Ebiasaph. He said, well, how do you know that? Well, take your Bible and go to 1 Chronicles chapter 6. 1 Chronicles chapter 6. And when you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse number 38, and, and understand in 1 Chronicles 6, we're reading a genealogy in the Bible. This man was the son of this man, who was the son of this man, who was the son of this man. So if you would go to 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse number 38, and you will notice the Bible says the son of Esar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, the son of Israel. So we are reading about the son of court. Now, from verse number 38, we need to go backwards. And when we go backwards, we will notice that Ishar had a son named Korah. But if you keep going, you'll notice that Korah had a son named Ebiasaph. Now, had the family of, uh, uh, of Korah been wiped out, there certainly would have been nothing before verse number 37, but there is. Because when the judgment of God came that day, though he wiped out the family of Dathan and the family of Abiram, and though we thought he wiped out the family of Korah, in the midst of wrath, God showed mercy. And he saved a little fella named Debiasaph. You're still in 1 Chronicles 6, 37. Keep going backwards. Debiasaph has a son named Asir. Asir has a son named Tehath. Tehath's boy is named Zephaniah. Then there's Azariah and Joel and Elkanah. Then there is Amasai and Mahath and Elkanah and Zuth. Then there is Toa and Eliel and Jeroham. And notice Jeroham has a son named Elkanah. And at the end of verse number 33, Elkanah has a son named Shemuel. We know Shemuel as Samuel. In other words, this family that I thought was wiped off the face of the earth, this family that you may well have thought that God put him in the pit and it was over with. No, the Bible tells us that in the midst of the holy anger of God, while we humans get angry and we get consumed, it never works that way with God. His anger always has a purpose. His anger is always righteous. And in the midst of his anger, God saved the life of a little guy named Ebiasaph, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son. And one day, 
there's a son named Elkanah who has a son. And the Bible tells us that he and his wife, it was a miracle boy. Her, her, she couldn't have a child. And yet as Hannah was weeping before God, God gives them one of the mightiest men of God in the Bible, a prophet by the name of Samuel. What a story. The family that we thought was wiped off the face of the earth, not so. God's rescued this family. God saved this family. Now all of a sudden as the time of the Old Testament goes on, as the days turn into weeks and months and years and decades and even centuries, this family that was so wicked, this family that was so evil, this family that had the judgment of God upon them, now they become a family that has the blessing of God upon them. And one of the descendants of Korah, I like to say one of the descendants of Ebiasaph is the mighty preacher of God, Samuel. But that's not all, is there? If you keep tracing the lineage, you'll discover there were soldiers that would fight with David at Ziglag. Later, one of these sons of Ebiasaph was a man named Asaph. God would use him to write 12 powerful songs. And then there is this. In Chronicles, in verse number 31, these are they whom God set over the service of the Lord in the, house, in the service of song in the house of the Lord. After that, the ark had rest, and they ministered before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of the congregation was singing until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Why, the Bible tells us that these Kohathites surrendered to full-time service. Their testimony was so different now where once their family had the wrath of God hanging over it, where once their great-great-granddaddy was so evil and so wicked that God had to judge him and seemingly wipe every memory of their family off the earth. Now, the Bible tells us that these sons of Korah, these descendants of Ebiasaph, have become some of the great singers of the Old Testament. And they even have a name. They are called the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah would lift up their voices in the tabernacle. And then they would lift up their voices in the temple in the house of the Lord. Aye, they would exalt the Lord. They had be It became a choir with a heritage. A choir that would pass that on. Aye, what a mighty story is the story of the sons of Korah. They were so special that in our Bible, there are 11 songs that are dedicated to the sons of Korah. 11 psalms. Eleven cantatas that God wrote especially for them to sing. No, every time we read a song for the sons of Korah, we ought to go back to the day where, why, that family was so wicked and so evil that God wiped Korah off the face of the earth. And we thought he wiped out the whole family. But no, he found the way to save the life of one little boy who began to teach his sons how to live for the Lord. I can see a biasap tell his boys, I saw what happens when pride and rebellion gets in the heart. Don't go the way that Korah did and pretty soon the generation begins to turn and a family begins to change and though the history of the family was wickedness and pride and arrogance and judgment and evil now this family not only do they turn from all the judgment they become one of the shining families of the Old Testament they become one of the great servants of the Lord they are so special that God puts 11 songs in the Bible for them to sing the sons of Korah were once a family that had the curse of God upon them. And now they become a family that is incredibly special.
Would you take your Bible and turn to Psalm 85, song number 85? And, and before you get to verse number one in Psalms 85, like many Psalms, this one is to the chief musician, the choir director. But notice this is one of those 11 songs that are in the Bible for the sons of Korah to sing, a Psalm for the sons of Korah. Now, it's just my guess. I've got a 10 to 1 odds of being wrong on this. But I wonder if this one wasn't their favorite one to sing. And, and I'll show you why. But I wonder if the one they didn't love more than any other one was this. Hey, this psalm for them is a walk down memory lane. This song tells them what could have happened had they not walked with God. A psalm for the sons of Korah. And in verse number one, they begin to sing. Get the picture in your mind. I, the nation of Israel has gathered to the house of the Lord. Uh, the chief conductor, the musician, has put the baton, tapped it on the stand. A hush has fallen over the people. And now with beautiful harmony and beautiful melody and beautiful voice, the sons of Korah lift up their voice and they begin to sing. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Psalm 85.1. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Boy, you can imagine the sons of Korah. There's a smile in their heart now. They know that God's been very favorable to Israel. Israel, and, and when they once were in bondage to Egypt, God delivered them out of the captivity. But you know, better than deliverance from bondage is the fact that God forgave the iniquity of the people. So many sins, God forgave them. So much mercy, so much grace. But you know, when God forgave the iniquity of the people, he even forgave the iniquity of the sons of Korah. That family that was so rebellious and so evil, God found the way to forgive them. And if it were just the forgiveness of God that would be more than enough how about the next thing they sing in verse number two thou has covered all their sin wow can you hear the sons of Korah singing, God has covered our sin? You know, what they had to be thinking is God covered our great granddaddy in a pit. He was so rebellious, the ground opened wide and swallowed him up. The God who covered our father in the pit is the God who now covers our sins in the pit. No wonder they put a seal on there. Stop right here. Let's just think about that one for a while. They sing in verse number three, thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Boy, that means something to you and that means something to me. But if you were a descendant of Korah, a son of Abiasaph, how much more would those words mean? You have turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. God's anger was so fierce, he opened the ground and swallowed their families whole. God's anger was so fierce that day, he showed all the people how great he is. But the God who once was fierce in his anger has now turned to mercy from wrath to mercy. No wonder in verse number four, he said, turn us, O Lord God of our salvation and cause thine anger towards us to cease. I, the sons of Korah, are singing a testimony of their family. It's the story of their home. I, there was once when judgment was upon us and wrath was upon us. There was once when sin had consumed us and the wrath of God was ready to fall. But now the God who once swallowed us up into a pit is the God who has turned from wrath and a God who has blessed us. So the key verse in Psalm 85 is verse number 5 where the sons of Korah sing, Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? The story and the reason that Psalms 85 is in the Bible is because God wanted the people of Israel to understand what he wants you and me to understand that the judgment of God may fall in days gone by. The wrath of God indeed will be poured out against sin. But Psalms 85 is in the Bible because God wants you and I to know there still is hope for a home. 
Psalms 85 is in the Bible because even though the judgment of God may be real in days gone by, that doesn't mean he is angry forever. Just because his anger was on generations past, it doesn't mean the anger of God has to be today. No matter the past sins, no matter the past people, no matter the past shame, no matter the past disgrace, Psalm 85 is in the, is in the Bible so that the people of God will know there still is hope for your home. Can you hear them sing verse number six? Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Psalms 85 is a psalm of revival for the family. Psalms 85 is in the Bible because the sons of Korah, I like to say the sons of Ebiaseth, are reminding us every time they sing, every note that they lift up, every word from their tongue is that even though God is holy and God is pure and God judges sin and the wrath of God may well be on the family and death, Days gone by, that does not necessarily mean that God has to judge today. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of forgiveness. He is a God who turns. He is a God who repents. He is a God that can set things right. The story of Ebiasaph is in the Bible, so you and I will know how there is hope for the home. So how does this change? Because maybe somebody tonight would say, well, you know, preacher, my story is different than yours. I didn't grow up in a Christian family with a Christian heritage. I, I, I'm not like you. I didn't grow up in a church nursery and then a church Sunday school class and then a church youth program. I, I didn't hear hundreds and hundreds and thousands of preaching sermons before I was 18. You say, preacher, there's a lot of shameful stories in my family. Maybe you say, my family's a story of drunkenness, a story of drug abuse, a story of violence. You say, there's a lot of things I'm not proud of, a lot of memories I wish I didn't have, a lot of things that I wish I never saw. My family, spiritually speaking, is a mess with the curse of God upon it. But you know, the very verse that tells us God blesses the wicked, tells us that he, or curses the wicked, tells us that he blesses the habitation of the just. It's why Psalms 85 is in the Bible. This is not the story of a preacher's family. This is not the story of a missionary's family. This is not the story of Moses' family. We are talking about the sons of Korah here. We are talking about rebels. We are talking about a family that was so wicked and so evil that God opened up the ground and swallowed them whole. And by now they are the shining example of one of the great families of the Old Testament. So how did the Lord do it? Would you take your Bible to Psalm 85 and, and could I show you how the sons of Korah, the sons of Ebiasaft, turned around their family heritage? Notice it all started at the cross. I will trust his salvation. How does a family change? Verse number seven, show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. It all changes with the salvation of heaven. A family changes when a dad bows his knee to Christ and says, I am a sinner who needs thy mercy. I need the Lord, Jehovah the personal savior I need your salvation enough of religion salvation enough of human salvation I need the salvation of the Bible the salvation of the way the truth and the life I am a sinner who needs mercy the sons of Ebiasaph changed when they met the mercy of God a family changes tonight when a dad meets the mercies of God for all the days gone by and all the sorrows and all the tears for all the divorce and all the calls to the police for all the heartaches for all all the shame for all the embarrassment 
Everything changes at Calvary when a sinner bows their knee to Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. One of the things that changes and becomes new is a family. I, a dad once may well have been coming home at night drunk. A dad may once have been a man who cursed and swore. A man with very violent acts against his children. But now the language is different. Now the compassion is there. Now the heart is turned. A dad who has come to the cross is a very different dad indeed. You'll never be able to change a family without Jesus. It all turns at the cross. How do you change your family by yourself? How do you come from a home that has the curse of God over the house of the wicked to a family where he blesses the habitation of the just? How does this happen? Number one, I trust in his salvation. But you know, there's more to turn a family around. Number two, we have to listen to the Bible. I will hear his word. Verse eight, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. So it is not enough just to be saved. A family that wants to turn from curse to blessing has to be a family that builds itself on the Bible. I will hear, attentively hear to what the God the Lord will speak. I am gonna build my life listening to the Bible. I'll build my marriage listening to the Bible. We will build our children listening to the Bible. We are are going to hear what God the Lord will speak. And do you know what happens when the sons of Ebiasaph, the sons of Korah, begin to listen to the Bible? It says he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. What a statement. A family that once was so violent, the ground opened wide and swallowed them up. A family swirling in rebellion. Show me a family where there is rebellion. I will show you turmoil and trouble on every side. There never is a, a peaceful dinner. There never is a peaceful conversation. Everything is tinged with words. And, and yet all of that has been changed from war to peace. All of that has been changed from battle to peace. All of that has changed from rebellion to peace. Because they have listened to the Bible. They have built their family upon the word of God. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people. And notice the end of verse number eight. Remember who's singing now, the sons of Korah. Let them not turn again to folly. Oh, you can hear the sons of Ebiasaph say, we've done this the wrong way. We know our heritage. We know where we came from. When our father foolishly lived in rebellion against God, when he foolishly led the charges against Moses, what a wicked day it was. We lived in folly. We lived in rebellion. And the judgment of God came upon us. We're not going to go back to foolishness. We're not going to go back to folly. We're not going to go back to that place where the judgment of God hangs over us. So how do you keep your family from folly? You listen to the word of God. We mentioned it last night, again tonight, how you doing with a family altar. You're not going to build a family for the Lord unless dad gathers his family around the Bible. No TV, we turn off the cartoons, all the rest of it. Bible, Bible, no video games, no phones, Bible. We're going to open up the Bible. We're going to hear what God the Lord will speak. If we don't want to go back to folly, if we don't want to go back to ruin, if we don't want to go back to turmoil, we have to be people that build our lives and our homes on the word of God. How do the sons of Ebiasaph turn a family from having the curse of God to having the blessing of God? Number one, I will trust his salvation. Number two, I will hear his word. But number three, I will fear him. In verse number nine, surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in the land. There are so many great promises here. I want the land to be full of glory, mercy, truth, to be full of righteousness and peace, to be full of goodness and prosperity. But it will not happen until we trust his salvation, we listen to his word, and now we fear him. Well, that's the hard one, isn't it? 
You see, when a father fears the Lord, everything changes. There are a lot of people that men are afraid of. You, know, you may be afraid of your children. You may be afraid of a mother-in-law. You may be afraid of a neighbor. There are a lot of people that people seem to be afraid of. But you know, when we have a holy fear of God, a holy fear of God, the one we fear the most is the one we're going to respond to and obey. When there is a conflict, the one who wins the conflict in our hearts or in our homes, the one who wins that battle is the one we fear the most. So when a family member comes along, maybe grandma shows up and says, why can't my granddaughter go to the dances like every other granddaughter does? Dad's got a choice to make, doesn't he? And maybe the pressure from the kids, maybe the pressure from grandma and grandpa's can be pretty intense. And it's awfully easy to cave to the pressure of humans. But the one you fear the most is the one you're going to win, is the one who's going to win the day. And when a dad says, no, no, we don't go to the dances in the school because we fear the Lord. And we're going to do what God wants us to do, not what grandma and grandpa want us to do. Well, that dad may have some battles and he may have some struggles, but he makes that choice because he fears God. When a dad says, I fear God, it changes the kind of TV shows they watch. When a dad fears God, then all of a sudden the stuff on Netflix is not going to be popular in a Christian home. When a dad fears God, the movie channels that are so ubiquitous are suddenly going to be unwelcome. When a dad fears God, it changes the violent video games they're not allowed. When a dad fears God, you've got different books or magazines laying around the house. When a dad fears God, it changes the way a family behaves. Look, there are a lot of people to fear. There are a lot of people that put pressure. There's a lot of angles where dad's got to make some choices. But if we fear God more than anyone else, if we love him, fear him, honor him, exalt him, if God is the one who is the king of our homes, then no matter what the world has to offer, no matter what pressure brings to bear, the one we fear the most is the one who's going to win the argument. When a dad fears God, it's going to change the way his family behaves. Do you get the big picture from Psalm 86? What a story. The story of a people who say, we have had our, our past destroyed. We have seen the judgment of God wipe us out. Many of us, for years, centuries, even millennia later, thought the family of Korah was wiped right out. But no, God found the way to save a little boy named Ebiasaph. Who taught a son, who taught a son, who taught a son. What did they teach their sons? To trust his salvation, to listen to the Bible, to fear the God of heaven. And now the Bible tells us a family that once had the wrath of God has a very different future. In verse number 13, righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. How different is that? There was one day a burning fiery pit was in front of them. But where once the bottomless pit was in front of them, now righteousness is in front of them. When once there was the way to hell, now there are the steps of eternal life. When once there was a path to destruction, now there is a road to home, glory. If there is a message from the Bible for you and for me tonight from the sons of Korah, a.k.a the sons of Ebiasaph, it is that there is hope for your home tonight. 
No matter what's been in the past, there's hope for your home tonight. If you're not saved, I urge you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent and call upon the name of the Savior. You know him as your Savior. Tonight is the night to start. We will build our homes on the Bible. We will establish a family altar. We are going to build our lives on thus saith the Lord. Tonight is the night to say, God is going to win the argument. God is going to win the battle. It is God whom we fear more than any other human. There is hope for a home. Everything can turn around if we do this God's way. Would you take your Bible one more time and turn to Psalms 106. Psalms 106, we might say, is a history lesson where God does again what he does frequently in the Bible, where he reviews the history of his people. And in Psalm 106, as he's reviewing the nation of Israel and their history past, he says in verse 16, the story we began with tonight, when they envied Moses also in the camp and, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord. And of course, we know what happened in verse 17. The earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram and a fire was kindled in their company and a flame burned up the wicked. Did you see something there? God is reviewing the story that we started with tonight. And he tells us that the earth opens up and it swallows up Dathan. Yep, we know that. And the company of Abiram. Yep, we know that. And a fire was kindled in their company, the 250 men of renown, and, and burned up the wicked. Yes, we are reminded of that again. But when Psalms 106 was written near the back end of the Old Testament, isn't it fascinating in verse 17 what is missing? I mean, centuries after the event... The people of Israel are singing and they are being reminded of Dathan and his family, of Abiram and his family, of the wrath of God that came on the 250 scholars of renown. But isn't it fascinating that God kept out the name of Korah in that verse? Now, I don't know why God didn't put Korah's name in that verse where it certainly is found in Numbers, but it certainly is missing, isn't it? There's nothing about Korah, and I'd like to think that by the time Psalm 106 is being sung, that the family of Korah, oh, the sons of Ebiasaph, had so changed their testimony and so changed their family that God in heaven looked down with a smile and says, I have seen a family do it right, where once the curse of the wicked hung upon them, now they know the blessed habitation of the just. Could it be that by the time we get to Psalm 106, and God is reviewing the history of the people, might it be that God said, hang on, just for once, let's leave the name of Korah out of this list. I don't know what you read when you look at a verse like verse 17 and 18 of Psalms 106, but I know what I see. There is hope for your home. There's hope for your home. A home can start to change tonight. A home with a curse upon it can be a home that is blessed of God. I trust his salvation. I listen to the Bible. I fear the God of heaven. There is hope for your home. Years ago in Chicago in my country, there was a, a, a lawyer, a famous lawyer named Easy Eddie. He was a crooked lawyer and he worked for Al Capone, the famous gangster. There were many times when Al Capone was as guilty as he could be, and uh, yet he would stand before a judge, and if the judge wasn't bribed, his lawyer Easy Eddie would find a loophole, and soon Al Capone would be back on the streets living the life of the criminal. But Easy Eddie had a son that he loved. They called him Butch. And he grew up looking at his son with great love and great compassion, and, and he knew that Butch had a daddy that was a crooked man, a criminal man, and 
And finally, because he loved his son so dearly, Mr. Easy Eddie went to the authorities with the goods on Al Capone. He built the case against him, and before long, Al Capone was arrested and sent away. Easy Eddie knew exactly what that meant. And sure enough, the day came where he was brutally gunned down and murdered on the streets of Chicago. But his boy grew up and one day entered the military. He flew in World War II and became a great American hero. In fact, if you've ever flown to the U.S. and flown through the city of Chicago, you would recognize his boy's name because Easy Eddie had a son named Butch, Butch O'Hare. O'Hare Airport was named in honor of that great American hero who had a daddy named Easy Eddie. There's hope for your home tonight. No matter the past, no matter the tears, no matter the sorrow, no matter the heartache, if a dad will say, we're coming to the cross, I believe I'm the Lord Jesus Christ. The mercies of God are what we need. Everything changes in the heart. When a dad says, I'm going to open up the Bible and study to show myself approved unto God, there's hope for that family. And when a dad says, there's struggles, there's conflict, but the one who wins the conflict is the one I fear the most. And so I fear the holy God of heaven more than any human. There's hope for a family like that. Is there hope for your home tonight? Well, if God could do it for Ebiasaf, he could do it for you. If God could do it there, God can do it in Surrey, British Columbia. If God could do it then, God can do it now. Psalm is in the Bible. The sons of Korah are in the Bible. The sons of Ebiasaf are remembered in the Bible because God wants us to know tonight there is hope for your home. Father, I ask and pray that we would allow the Bible to do great work in our heart and life tonight. I pray first for someone who's never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there is no hope for families. They're crumbling and falling on every side. A world who despises the nuclear family, the Christian family. Lord, there is no hope in our pagan world, but tonight there's great hope at Calvary. And for somebody who needs to be saved, may tonight be that night they call upon the name of Christ. I pray, Father, that your words would do mighty works for your children. May there be families that are strong for Christ in this wicked day, that are willing to stand upon the Bible and stand for the God of heaven. Lord, we ask you to do a great work in our homes. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. May God bless you tonight. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.